Hello and welcome back to the SPRC podcast. I'm Gala Rexe, lecturer at the Sarah Parker Raymond Center at UCL, and I'm delighted to welcome Dr. Zain Yao, who has joined me today to talk about her book, Disaffected, and race, gender, emotions, and politics more broadly. Zain is my colleague here at UCL, where she has recently been promoted to associate professor in American literature to 1900 where she serves as the co-director of the Queer Studies Network, QUCL, and, if I may say so, is one of the best-dressed academics I have met so far. Thank you. Their first book, Disaffected, The Cultural Politics of Unfeeling in 19th Century America, was published in 2021 with Duke University Press and has won Duke's Scholars of Color First Book Award, as well as an Arthur Miller First Book Prize Honorable Mention from the British Association of American Studies. She's a BBC Radio 3 New Generation thinker and the co-host of their own podcast, PhDivas. We wanted to record an episode for the SPRC podcast for a while now, so I'm really excited it's finally happening. So thank you so much for joining me today, Zion. Oh, thank you so much, Gala, for being persistent. For those of you who might have been following the SPRC event schedule, Gala organized this fantastic conversation that I had at the beginning of the year with Lola Olufemi. But actually, then I was struck down by long COVID for most of this past year. So many thanks to Gala for her patience and persistence and following up. And, you know, also knock on wood, I'm on the road to recovery now. So very pleased to finally be on the podcast. This really leads to my first question. So Disaffected has been out for almost two years now, and you have been talking about it a lot, for example, at this event, but also on many different panels, podcasts, etc., and while the book focuses on the 19th century and on American literature, I think that your analysis on racial and sexual politics of unfeeling has been taken up across different fields by different people, etc. And I think it's really not surprising, given the sort of interdisciplinary theoretical framework that you open in the book. And I come back to it constantly in my own research, but also in talking to students, and I will be in teaching. And I really believe that it also sort of offers an analytic for many of the things that we see happening today. So given all of this, I was wondering if you could just start with reflecting a little bit on the book's journey so far. So how did you travel with this affected, but also how did the book travel with you? I think that's a fantastic question. Thank you. I guess what's also really underlined for me is a book isn't just the content. Like, I think that the book has had a life of its own, and the way that it's moved has also been a way of thinking and a form of relationality, as much as anti-relationality, that has really grown in different ways since its publication. And that's something I was not really prepared for. I'm just trying to find, like, how I actually close the introduction. I, I say at the very end, ultimately, this book proposes that feeling otherwise is the precondition for thinking and imagining otherwise. This opening is an invitation to you, to my reader, to speculate about the possibilities of feeling otherwise. And when I wrote those things, I think it was as I was fine-tuning my book drafts during the first lockdown with so much uncertainty and the sort of sense of reaching out into an absolute unknown felt quite lonely and alienating. But I think that sense of individual and structural alienation is something that has managed to speak to a lot of people. And I'm really grateful to the many conversations I've had since then. And one thing I'd also like to highlight is that so many of these conversations, talks, and events that I've been so honored to be a part of 
are usually organized by early career scholars, PhD students, precarious people. And there's something I think about the way that it's resonated with these particular demographics that perhaps also speaks to what I'm trying to do structurally in the book in terms of trying to capture particular insensibility as a sensibility, as it were. And that has been incredibly rewarding because I think part of also, as much as I'm talking about unfeeling, it's so much about the negotiation of withholdings and disclosures when I talk about feminist and queer color critique. Ashe Moraga says that, you know, it's the calculus of who we said to say to, to who and to whom, to whom. And likewise, it feels like part of the book is also the sort of strategic exposure vulnerability that has to do with sharing your work at a particular important stage in your academic career, which is incredibly intimidating and putting it out in the world and then seeing what has to happen. And of course, the whole discussion of unfeeling for me is because I hate this type of vulnerability, but also recognizing that the strategic use of exposure of vulnerability, but then that also means like thinking about invulnerability simultaneously. And I think that that has perhaps helped other people to negotiate their own personal journeys, be it methodological, be it theoretical. And particularly hearing from junior people who say that they really have been struggling in their programs and that it's done something for them. And if people are listening to this, I'd like to just really emphasize that that difficulty is not a problem with you as an individual that is structural. And it's also something that I try to remember to always bring up in my pedagogy as well, that the sense of alienation or feeling like an outsider, imposter syndrome, as it sometimes calls, is really like the individualization of what is actually a structural problem. Yeah. And so I think it's resonated for those reasons. And I'm so grateful that, you know, Gala and your fantastic work in a completely different time period and a different geography, it resonates. And it has just been so exciting to see how it's moved beyond 19th century American studies. Because I guess part of what the point I try to make, and indeed people might be listening and thinking like, I don't work on 19th century American literature, or maybe I just know Moby Dick or Emily Dickinson, and that's fine. But part of what I'm trying to argue in the book is the way that it has become this pervasive cultural paradigm. And because of the power of US cultural imperialism, it has become a framework for thinking about expression, emotion, also like the pursuit of justice, the work that literature and artistic expression is presumed to have in terms of minoritized representation towards a certain politics. And that, that is something that obviously has disproportionately affected the world and the way that we think about progress, et cetera, et cetera. And so I, again, I'm really honored to know that it has resonated in those ways, but also perhaps it's interesting to know, like, in what ways has it not resonated? And that's something that we can't know from our work. But one thing I did think was funny, if you don't mind me continuing to ramble, is another accolade that my book got was that it was a finalist for the University Book Prize. But what I thought was so fascinating was they wrote up these little blurbs for each of the finalists, which must have taken a lot of labor. So my hat's off to them. But what really struck me when I was reading everyone's descriptions is that mine was the only one that had sort of like this sort of negative connotation where they, I think they called my book disturbing or something like that. But actually that made me really happy to hear that. I think that is a sort of friction, the abrasion, the sort of uncomfortable staying with the negativity of unfeeling that I wanted to provoke. So I appreciate that whoever wrote that was brave enough to do that. Yeah, I think that really mirrors what your book does, what it says and what it does. So I also agree that's kind of a great thing. It evokes maybe uncomfortable, maybe ugly or like sicky feelings in others, apparently. And that leads to one of the biggest takeaways that the book has had for me, which is sort of your intervention into affect theory or affect studies. And right in the introduction, you state that very clearly it's a subheading 
and it says affect studies has a race problem. And recently, for my own work, I've been reading a lot of Sidia Hartman and Sylvia Winter, and I thought so many times about your book. And basically, because what I think what they're basically doing is affect theory. It's just that affect theory, up until recently, your affect scholars weren't able to recognize that that's what they're doing, precisely yes. because they were writing on a different register of affect through a different mode that sort of falls outside of what is legible as dominant mm -hmm. expressions of emotions or feelings. So could you talk a little bit about this intervention that you're making? Sort of tell us about the authors you're in conversation with, and also how did you, and this is a quote from the introduction as well, take up the ethical charge to decolonize affect studies? Yeah. So I guess like the thing I also caution is on the one hand, I think it's an imperative to do it, but can decolonization happen? And of course, there's been really important critiques of that, particularly from Indigenous studies led by Indigenous feminists like Eve Tuck. So I will say that it's a sort of uncomfortable imperative in the extent to which it can or cannot be actualized as something that we also have to stay with. And I think is part of the difficulty and the struggle of it. So thank you for bringing up Hartman and Winter. There are a couple of the thinkers who I cite and very much engage in my text. So part of what I'm trying to do is bring together what I like to think of as not necessarily oppositional, but perhaps appositional genealogies of citation. That's what I'm doing is not necessarily a new thing, but it's a way of like recognizing, I think, the unrecognized contributions that are made, particularly by feminist and queer of color thinkers, anti-colonial thinkers, and putting them in tension with so many people's works that are more legible, such as Lauren Berlant's or um, CNI, and seeing what that does. And I think it's also a reflection of, you say, the way that winter works, for instance, like She is someone who draws very much on, say, fields of European philosophy. And yet, of course, her work is so important in terms of disrupting Enlightenment thinking, particularly around its universality. So one thing I'm trying to do in that regard is sort of bring together these sort of unruly intellectual traditions across many different fields, such as Black studies, Indigenous studies, Asian diasporic studies, queer color critique, and consider them together, not because they could be homogenized or made synonymous, But precisely because of their unruliness and different traditions of disobedience mean it's harder to flatten out. And I think that's a difficulty that we have to stay with and something which is really important as part of this effort of like fragmenting a colonial universal that instead, I think that we can't think all these different fields separately. The very way in which these disciplines and ways of thinking are siloed as separate is, of course, false to the historical nature of how these discourses emerged and also how they live in the world. But also part of the colonial strategy is to divide and conquer, to pretend that these things are exclusionary. Are there deep tensions between these fields? Definitely. But I think we have to stay with them and also to recognize that part of the hard work is to also recognize that if we hold them as falsely exclusionary, we are also succumbing to, again, a divide and conquer framework. So that's maybe like a long way of saying it. But in terms of other authors, I think that I'm thinking both of many different theorists, such as, of course, Lee Edelman's work in negativity, Jose Esteban Munoz's work on queer of color critique, The work of queer feminist of color theorists like Gloria Anzaldúa, like Audre Lorde. But then I'm also reading texts in the 19th century as a theorizing it of themselves. So one thing I do, for instance, is look at the texts by the first Black American woman to get medical degrees in the U.S. and reading them as theorizing what is now understood to be biopolitics 
but doing so through their practice of navigating medical school at the time and their own lived experiences. Or I'm looking at the way that the work of the first Asian diasporic woman writer, Suisun Farr, is also sort of theorizing oriental inscrutability as not simply a negative stereotype that needs to be overturned, but as a means of survival for Chinese migrants and one that's particularly queered and feminized. And so I think it's also it's so much about like thinking about, again, what theorists do we cite for what things, but also turning to the literary archive and our cultural archive to recognize that forms of theorization don't have to be in a specific form, but are just as legitimate. And this is a point that is made, I think it's Barbara Christian's iconic essay, The Race for Theory, which I think is in the late 70s. And her, she makes the point that she at the time was being called upon to create a theory of Black feminist writing. And she points out that rather than just producing theory as a particular professional imperative of what it means to be a scholar, to get jobs, to have a career, like what does it mean to actually recognize that, she says, people of color have theorized in different ways, often in the form of narrative or in the form of aesthetics, the hieroglyph. So yeah, thinking differently about all those things and exercising a type of effective disobedience that when sometimes if you read theory and it doesn't resonate with you or resonates differently, like that in itself is perhaps a type of methodology to make us think like, well, what things do resonate and how do we think through that in a rigorous way? That was really beautifully said. And I think reading the book, that kind of feeling of effective disobedience also traverses through the book into the reader, or at least that's how I felt while reading it at parts. And you kind of mentioned it already. So throughout the book, you offer these sort of different modes or cultural categories of unfeeling. They're unsympathetic Blackness, queer female frigidity, Black objective passionlessness, and Oriental inscrutability. So I was wondering if we could talk about these terms a little bit, especially I think for people who are listening who haven't read the book. And also maybe talk a little bit more about your methodology of engaging with literature and with the characters in the literature. So part of it is that not all those sort of phrases probably resonate with people as you're listening. You're like, okay, I've never even heard this phrase, like unsympathetic Blackness, for instance, but I have heard of Oriental inscrutability. I have heard of frigidity. And that's part of the point I'm trying to make is that by looking at these particular categories, I'm not trying to be exhaustive, but I do think that they're illustrative of when these forms of effective disobedience, disavowal, dissent become legible and become demonized and vilified, and when it also falls beneath the threshold of a type of marginal recognition. And so, for instance, when I talk about oriental inscrutability, I point out it's probably the most nameable of all racialized modes of unfeeling. And what I also say is thinking about in a comparative context, because I get that in my very last chapter of the book, chapter five, and to make the point that, well, up until then, I've been talking about forms of unfeeling for Black subjects, for Indigenous subjects towards different decolonial abolitionist possibilities. And to sort of point out that the way that they provide this sort of structural basis, but they also are not as readily recognized, even though, as I sort of try to point out, there's these distinct legacies in cultural production, in thinking at the time throughout scientific and legal discourse that these writers and people are trying to think and write against. And so with the Oriental inscrutability, because it's so nameable, but comes at the end, I think it maybe it allows a sort of belated reflection on what makes it so recognizable. And thinking about, again, the way that Suisun Far, because she's running at a period of time, for those who don't know, of particular anti-Chinese sentiment, this is the turn of the 19th to the 20th century. In a very similar way, like today, there's a sort of fear of Chinese migrants and cheap labor and that they're vectors of disease, et cetera, et cetera. 
And the usual scholarly approach to talking about Sui Sinfar is she was the first Chinese woman writer and she helped humanize the Chinese at a time where they're demonized as the yellow peril. And it's not that I'm disputing that, but rather looking more closely at her journalistic writings, her short stories, for the way that she's showing that oriental scrutability is not simply a matter of overturning, but can also be something that is protective, can be a way of negotiating between different cultural understandings of how affect and emotion operate. And particularly, I'm here talking about the Chinese concept of face, as opposed to the idea of face as something that's a transparently visible object that's, oh, yes, it's just my face. And I think this is sort of a precursor of the problems of facial recognition and technology that, again, it's sort of seen as so self-evident that I feel like almost every couple of months you see a paper come out by scientists who are like, oh, facial recognition works like this, and this is how we can presume these things. And you see people in like history, art history, cultural studies being like, you've done no work on how the analysis of faces isn't just simply the face that seems so self-evident. There's a whole host of cultural assumptions that have to do about how these things are read and their legibility. And so one point that I'm also making is that the Chinese migrants also then threatened to fracture the seeming universality of the very idea of Western emotion and also the very idea of faces with the very idea of Chinese face as a mode of sociality and emotion, for instance. But on the flip side, for instance, one of the less recognized ones I talk about, unsympathetic Blackness, my point with that is in conversation with the work of C.D. Hartman and also Afro-pessimist thinking on ethnic studies like Tyrone S. Palmer's work, is the way that sympathy becomes the very threshold of recognizing any sort of emotion and unemotion in any level of intensity as valid, as feeling in some capacity. And the underside then of this universality, the un, which cannot be recognized, is because of the central position of anti-Blackness. Therefore, what I call it, like unsympathetic Blackness. And likewise, when I have my second chapter, I talk about how unsympathetic Blackness comes together with a type of like indigenous disaffection too, is also a way of like trying to think together these different modes of forms of disaffection, the way that they come together for a type of decolonial solidarity. And also pointing out that Black and Indigenous are not mutually exclusive terms. And like part of what the project of this particular book, um, looking at Martin Delaney's Blake or the Huts of America, is he's also on this project of trying to reclaim Black indigeneity in a way that's not unproblematic and definitely in ways that have been critiqued as masculinist. But still, like we can see the sort of ambition of thinking together forms of disaffection from a world and a global order which is ordered on white supremacy. I think one of the questions that you're frequently getting is sort of about the ideological implications of unfeeling. And I think it's an important question. So for me and a lot of readers, it's obvious that you're writing about certain forms of feeling that refuse sympathetic recognition into a humanity that relies on racial hierarchies, right? Uh But it's also that very argument that right-wingers, conservatives, TERFs, incels, etc. use. They're also saying like there's this structure, this hegemonic structure of feeling And I like disidentify with this structure because I have different feelings and I want to argue for the nation, the family, essentialist gender categories. So they are also cultivating certain emotional attachments. And so how do you navigate this appropriation of affect from the right, I guess? And maybe also how can your book perhaps help us to challenge that? Yeah, I think that's a really good question and point because it's sort of similar to like, I found American audiences would often ask me like, well, what about disaffected Trump voters? And in British settings, I'd get like, what about disaffected Brexit voters? And I guess part of it's also that 
One thing I find very frustrating is because of the attacks on the right, often on the left, people feel pressured into these defensive positions that just because one is being pushed in a certain direction that you must necessarily be oppositional. But I think that in and of itself is part of the trap. And that's why one reason why I'm trying to stay with unfeeling that my sort of point is like this going back to the 19th century earlier and of course in the present day is that these sort of allegations of unfeeling and falling outside the framework of universal humanity often prompts like this sort of liberal overcompensation of, well, no, absolute sameness. No, this is like, uh, and, and so forth. And so what does it actually mean to stay with? Like, why are certain modes being vilified? And how are they being vilified? As opposed to quickly trying to recuperate them into an unexamined framework that might be just another means of containment, as opposed to truly emancipatory towards new possibilities. It's sort of like the problem that people are talking about increasingly in a mainstream way that minoritized people have always known as some form of like, you know, the, the problem with the framework of inclusion. That likewise, I think that the attacks from the right in terms of the divisiveness are met with inclusion as the corrective and yet included into what? What does it still recenter? And what sort of evaluative work has to be done to reconsider what that actually means and what, as it were, like structures of feeling are we expect to take refuge in? And using Raymond Williams' term, one thing I'm thinking about with unfeeling is saying like, well, unfeeling perhaps is a type of rupture from the structure of feeling towards radical different ways of thinking, feeling otherwise. And one way I do that, and I've had a lot of time to reflect on this as I've presented my book, is that now what I do when I give talks, I have two different, very different quotations that my final epigraph is from Audre Lorde's The Master's Tools Will Never Dismantle the Master's House. And the other is from my introduction where I draw on Raymond Williams' Structures of Feeling. And thinking that actually, in a way I hadn't perceived at the time, these are speaking to each other, that perhaps thinking through Audre Lorde, the master's house is the dominant hegemonic structure of feeling. And the way that she talks about how alienation, those being excluded from so many different reasons, end up being disaffected and alienated, but then can find solidarity together towards building other houses, other structures of feeling. Yeah, that is a beautiful way of thinking them together. And I also think what you said about the sort of staying with the unfeeling, staying with the disruptive, I think, really speaks to the queerness of this book. It speaks to yeah. sort of a mode of being that stays with that that can't be named or the taxonomies that are outside of what is legible. So it kind of relates to a recurring theme I tend to ask people when I'm recording these podcast episodes which is we develop these insurgent theories and like sticky concepts, etc. But we're also doing this from within or in relation to the institutions that we are part of. Uh -huh. So two weeks ago, I talked to Professor Kogu Emajulu about what it uh -huh. means to be a fugitive feminist in the academy. And you also addressed this issue in your very powerful coda at the end of the book where you're writing, and I quote, we need to reconsider how we approach anti-racist social justice work in our institutions. And then you continue, as we critique the liberal politics of recognition and inclusion, can we address the necessity of the antisocial and exclusionary moves by the marginalized? So I want to ask you, how can we be disaffected in the academy? And also maybe how do you approach that in the classroom, in teaching yeah. students, in interacting with them? Oh, that's a good question, especially since, well, I think I could share this, but I'm part of a number of different groups across UCL that are trying to do certain types of work, like reckoning with the legacy of eugenics, for instance. And part of like the trap is of having to do this work, but also realizing that it is a trap and it's not the only plane of struggle that can happen. 
And to realize it's also not about not accepting also like a divide and conquer methodology, the way that say within our institution, there's the race equality steering group, there's the LGBTQ equality steering group, et cetera, et cetera. And that structurally they're set up like that, but they're not actually exclusionary. And I think that the work of the people who are in these groups, professional services, people, academic staff, all across different disciplines, I think so many of those groups recognize that work and the work they have to do to stand together. So it's one of those things of like, I think you have to play certain games and jump through certain loopholes, certain thresholds of the politics of recognition, but also know it's not the only game in town and to know to question and push back. But it's also very much about like thinking about how does one acquire resources, what things require a certain level of legibility for certain people, for certain aspects of the institution, and then what you do with it is another question. And I think part of it is also that I don't like the sort of defeatist attitude of like, oh, it's the academy, not real life, because academia is also a plane of real life. We can't exceptionalize it as either the absolute plane of politics, which is also false. We can think of like the stereotype of, you know, the rich full professor Marxist who doesn't do any class solidarity, he's not part of the union, for instance, or like to say it's like the worst part and like it's completely outside of politics. The sort of problem is like, there's no place that is pure anywhere, any place institutionally, geographically. We have to struggle wherever we are and do what we can in those spaces. And to know that also only thinking within those spaces is a trap. So of course we have to push beyond it, but also pretending that we have to get away from a place is an illusion of purity. Yeah. Thank you for saying that. And how do you do that in the classroom? How do you teach these kind of issues? How do you discuss it with Uh, students? And also, yeah. I, I guess, like, as a scholar who works on emotions and feelings and affect, like, how do you handle that in the classroom? I think that so much of pedagogy is about emotion and recognizing it. That's not just about relaying content. And it's also obviously not about marketability and hireability and all these other things that the humanities are variously besieged about in UK higher education and many other countries. But actually being able to name the feelings and the negotiations that people are having in terms of what they're invested in and what interests them in their papers, in terms of certain texts, especially when it's something that's different to ourselves. Like, I think that a lot of students are gravitated to what I teach because they're like, oh, this is the person who teaches like Black text. This is the person who teaches Asian diasporic text and stuff like that. And this is things that they have really wanted or haven't had much access to, et cetera, et cetera. But to know that like that initial impulse is only the start of the work that has to be done. That's not just simply about like getting access because that in itself is extractive, but actually thinking about meaningful relation to the text. And for instance, one thing that comes up a lot is this sort of reductive sense that students who are passionate about thinking about anti-Blackness often end up producing literary texts by Black authors to just being reflections about anti-Blackness, which in itself is anti-Black. Like there's not this same recognition of Black creativity, survival, beauty, aesthetics, that there's so many different planes on what Black art operates that's not reducible to suffering. And yet, because I think that students are also doing the work of trying to like learn things that they have been denied, you sort of get stuck at that initial stage and they think that that's the work, but actually the work is more than that. That makes sense. Thank you for sharing that and your experiences in teaching these kind of issues. And I'm sure, and I know that students at UCL definitely really appreciate it. One of the key interventions I think that people take away from disaffected is also, and you kind of already talked about this a few times already, is about collectively feeling otherwise to imagine the world differently. And as you said, you start developing this notion in conversation with Martin Delaney in his novel Blake. And you kind of start thinking about this through the sentence where first Delaney and then his character says feeling somewhat as this Indian did, right? 
So Mm -hmm. it's kind of the feeling somewhat as that you take as a starting point to think about what you call counter intimacies about black indigenous sort of alternative structures of feeling or structures of unfeeling to be precise as a site for collective liberation through unfeeling and unfeeling towards whiteness towards structures Mm -hmm. of the human of humanity I guess. So could you talk a little bit more about this coalitional work of filling through and with and in relation to others who are disaffected? And I think also because we're coming to the end of this conversation, maybe thinking back to the opening question of how maybe your book has opened some of these counter intimacies also in the wild. I mean, I can only hope for, you know, having engendered such things. But I guess that point that I've been sort of making about the sort of the siloing of disciplines obviously is also very true for different forms of liberatory work. And so, for instance, in the Martin Delaney, I really try to discuss the tensions between Black diasporic people who have been enslaved in North America and the relationship to the indigenous peoples of what some cultural islands and thinking also about the possibility of recovering like an African indigeneity. And this one particularly illustrative chapter in Martin Delaney's book is when his characters visit the Choctaw Nation, which of all the different indigenous nations that he could have chosen is a particularly difficult example because they were enslavers. They participated in Southern chattel slavery, as opposed to another group like the Seminoles that more famously fought alongside Black fugitives. And so what's interesting is in that particular scene, they immediately sort of launch in this conversation where Blake says, well, I can see that you're slave owners. And then the chiefs are about to say like, also like, well, well, what about these problems on the other side? But then also they're suddenly disrupted by a character named Donald, perhaps funnily enough for the current Donald Trump, who then tries to disrupt it. And he's this white guy who so happens to be around and he just calls Blake the N-word. But the Choctaw chiefs don't allow him to continue. They send him away and say, this is unacceptable. And it sort of shows that the sort of difficult work that ensues, talking about anti-colonial work, talking about anti-Blackness, talking about enslavement, talking about decolonization, talking about settler colonialism, has to happen without having to just simply center whiteness and that inherent divisiveness. But it still means like grappling with these difficult histories and having that conversation. So I think that sort of sums it up. And I particularly do a close reading of this one sentence near the end of the novel. And we don't have the rest of the novel because it was lost, where the characters are gathering in Cuba and the sentence about different Black people of different levels of mixed raceness, Indigenous people of the region. And also they says, quote, even Chinamen are come together and are seen to be affiliating with each other as opposed to as usual among the whites. And in that regard, you can sort of see this sort of disaffection coalescing towards around a different center of a different possibility of a different axis of revolution in terms of the political sense, but perhaps also even revolution on a planetary sense, on a solar system level sense towards a different world. And yeah, I find that inspiring as flawed as his vision can be in some ways. And that's something I try to bring with me that when I go through the university, I really like, in this most silly way, making friends with a lot of different people. Because I like finding good people in all different parts of UCL that are doing the good work in different ways. And then thinking like, hey, we're all struggling together. And how can we help each other? And I'd have to say that, for instance, like my promotion was also the result of, say, me being able to reach out to so many kind people in many different departments who are also concerning about this type of work and them supporting me for this. And I'm really, very grateful. And that's something that I try to pay forward as much as possible when I give talks. I often offer to share my book materials, for instance. 
I know you mentioned it in the beginning, and I'm so glad that you're feeling better, sort of slowly recovering from long COVID. So if you have any plans, where are you taking this next? I think we all kind of are curious to see <laughs> <laughs> what you will do with these concepts next, if you have any ideas. But also, given the circumstances, I, I would totally understand if you're like, nope, I'm here right now and that's enough. Well, so the long COVID is only one of a number of health problems I have. Like I've also been someone with chronic illness for most of my life. And I've really been increasingly trying to grapple with critical disability studies. And so one way I see my work continuing is trying to think about it in relation to like crip of color critique and thinking about what unfeeling does. And I'm looking forward to starting to think about that. I think in January, I'm going to be on this panel for crip of color critique. But I also know that there are critical disabilities study scholars like Travis Chi Wing Lao, who I know has been taking up my work on unfeeling to think about disability, but he hasn't published anything yet. So I know that because I'm in conversation, he's like, oh, yes, I've drawn this. But I really hope that I can cite him so that when I'm trying to think about these things, I'm not repeating his work, but we can be in more dialogue with each other. So that's one way I'm perhaps thinking of next steps after I rest some more. Yes. Please rest. And that also sounds like establishing another sort of counter-intimacy through citational practice, through collaboration, through thinking together. Thank you so much, Sign. Thank you so much for joining me today. That was a fantastic conversation. Thank you so much for your questions, Gala. You are a masterful host. Thank you. Thank you for listening. For more information about UCL Sarah Parker Women's Centre, Find us at ucl.ac.uk forward slash racism dash racialization.